Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahnaz Haqqani. In today's episode, we discuss the very fascinating new book, Faces of Muhammad, Western Perceptions of the Prophet of Islam, from the Middle Ages to today with its author, John Tolan. The book was published with Princeton in 2019. John Tolan is a historian and medievalist whose research covers religious and cultural relations between the Arab and Latin worlds in the Middle Ages. Currently, he's a professor of history at the University of Nantes in France. He has written widely in French and English. His other English books include Saracen's Islam in the Medieval European Imagination, published in 2002 with Columbia University Press, and Sons of Ishmael, Muslims Through European Eyes in the, in the Middle Ages, published with University Press of Florida in 2008. Faces of Muhammad explores non-Muslim European men's perceptions of Muhammad from the Middle Ages until the 20th century, using sources that range from art to literature to history to theater to religion. Tolan shows that portrayals of Muhammad are varied and complex, indeed contradictory, and reveal more about the context in which these images appear than about Muhammad or Islam. In other words, the non-Muslim European discourse on Muhammad reflects the writer's own preoccupations at home. Views about Muhammad are varied and complex, again, Tolan argues, and not always negative, as is often highlighted. Sure, Muhammad is a false prophet, a heretic, a trickster, an idol in some cases, but he's also a role model, a hero, a great leader in others, sometimes in the same time period. For instance, while during the Crusades, Muhammad is a false prophet and the primary opponent of the Christian writers, during the Protestant Reformation, the Prophet of Islam is received more positively, although not consistently. He is instrumentalized in the polemics between the various Christian groups, such such that each group, specifically the Protestants, the Catholics, the Unitarians, hold differing views on Muhammad and parallels are drawn between him and the writers' contemporary heroes and opponents. In today's discussion, Tolan shares with us the primary contributions and arguments of the book, including specific depictions of Muhammad and the contexts that shape them, legends associated with Muhammad involving bulls and doves and floating coffins, the Christian doctrine of immaculate conception and its relevance to Muhammad, Jewish authors' perceptions of and relationship with Muhammad, and a lot more. Without further ado, here's my interview with John Tolan. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your very fascinating book, Faces of Muhammad, Western Perceptions of the Prophet of Islam from Middle Ages to Today. Like I was just telling you, I found this so fascinating. I have the word fascinating written all over so many of the chapters. Um, And I was taking very meticulous notes about what I could assign in my own class, uh, including in a first year class that I teach on Abrahamic religion. So thank you so much for writing it. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted that you like the book, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. 
Absolutely. Um, so the first question that we ask our, our guests is to share their intellectual journey with us. What brought you to the field and especially to this book? Well, it's a, it's a long story, but I, uh, for my dissertation, which I did at the University of Chicago in 1990, I was, I was in the field of, of medieval history, working on particularly Latin text, medieval intellectual history in Europe. And I became interested in uh, the intellectual relations between the Arab world and Latin Europe, and also the polemics uh, written by Jews Christians and Muslims about each other's religions. Uh, and I realized while much had been uh, done, much scholarship had been done about uh, the whole history of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism in Christian Europe, uh, much less had been done about uh, European perceptions of Islam. So I wrote, uh, after my dissertation, I wrote a book called Saracens, published in 2002, which was about uh, medieval European perceptions of Islam. And this, of course, a lot of it had to do with portrayals of the prophet. Uh, I was then a few years later invited uh, to write an article for uh, a book called The Cambridge Companion to Muhammad, uh, which was, uh, it was a brief article, 30 pages, on Muhammad as seen uh, by Europeans. Uh, and uh, an editor uh, that I know at Princeton had read that article and said, uh, this would make a great book. Would you like to do this? So that uh, that's sort of the genesis of this book. And uh, as a medieval historian, I uh, enjoy sort of reading beyond my period and uh, seeing, uh, particularly in the some of the 18th century and 19th century uh, authors who I uh, didn't know much about before I started working on this project and uh, whose portrayals of the prophet often uh, in very positive uh, and surprising ways uh, to, uh, to us, I uh, found fascinating. So before we get into the book, um, can, you, can you walk our readers through your primary argument and contributions of the book? How is this book different from some of the others published in the last few years about the prophet of Islam? Well, my book uh, is about uh, European perceptions of the prophet, and uh, I particularly have tried to show uh, the great variety and diversity uh, of those perceptions, because often uh, we have the idea that European uh, images of, of Muhammad are, are negative, and of course many of them are, many of them are polemical, uh, but uh, many are not, and uh, what I've tried to do is uh, show how at different periods the prophet became uh, interesting to European authors uh, for various reasons. And often uh, they use the prophet either in a negative way or a positive way uh, to make an argument that had more to do with European culture and more to do with rivalry, say, between Protestants and Catholics or between anti-clerical uh, deists and uh, and Christians, then it really had to do about Islam. That Oh my God, that chapter on the internal debates, religious and political um, in Europe and, and how they shape ideas on Muhammad was one of my favorites. Uh, so yeah, that was very, very enlightening. Thank you for that too. And I think one of the other richest things about this book is that you draw from a range of sources and not just in terms of discipline and genre, but also language. Can you tell us how you came to choose your methods and your, and your sources and which particular languages you're working with here? 
Okay, well, I'm I'm uh, trained as a medievalist, so I'm trained in, in Latin uh, and uh, to a lesser extent Greek. So a lot of my sources that I work with are, are in Latin from the Middle Ages or, or the Renaissance. Uh, I live and work in France, and I've also lived in, in uh, Italy, Spain, and Germany. So I'm dealing with sources uh, in those languages as well. Uh, and... Uh, so those are essentially the, the languages I'm dealing with. I, um, you know, you're, you're just talking about the fact that you've also written a book called Sid, uh, on the Saracens. And I, I became really fascinated with this idea in, um, in the first couple of chapters when you're talking about portrayals of Muhammad and the Saracens, um, which, you know, it, it was new to me that the, that your sources are linking it to Sarah and you know, the wife of Abraham. And so I was just reading some excerpts from your, from, from Saracens on this to, to get a better, cause it was just really fascinating to get a, to get a better understanding of that discussion. Um, and I imagine that, and I imagine that as more people become literate, the audience of these texts, um, expand as well. But who exactly are the intended audience of the materials that you're working with? Well, there are different kinds of materials, of course, with different kinds of audiences. Right. And some of the texts on the Saracens uh, are Latin texts, either of uh, either chronicles or theological texts that try to place Islam and Muhammad uh, in uh, a framework of Christian history. And of course, to these Christian authors, uh, Muhammad can't be a true prophet. He has to be a false prophet. Uh, and they try to put it in the f- framework of biblical history. Now, of course, if you look at the text of Genesis, uh, we have uh, a description of Abraham and his two uh, wives and his two sons, uh, his son Ishmael, uh, who uh, Abraham had with uh, in in Genesis, is with an Egyptian slave, Hagar, uh, and then uh, his second son Isaac, which he has with his wife Sarah. And uh, the conflict between uh, the two sons is described in Genesis, and Ishmael is seen as the forefather of the Arabs, uh, whereas. Uh, Isaac is the forefather of the the Jews. So this biblical framework is used to give sense to uh, who these Saracens are uh, by a number of writers, even before uh, the beginning uh, of Islam, because uh, Saracen was a geographical term, Sarakenoi in Greek, uh, and then Sarakeni in Latin, uh, and this, these terms were used to describe people of Arabia. And then they later, uh, this term later came to, uh, to mean uh, Muslim. So it's a, originally an ethnic term. And in, uh, it was connected with the, this biblical story of Ishmael, who is portrayed in Genesis as a wild man whose hand will be against all and all will be against him. So the violence uh, of the Saracen invasions uh, portrayed in various chroniclers is seen as a continuation of this biblical violence announced in Genesis. Uh, so for me, I, I try to get into the heads of these authors and think you know, from their perspective, living in Europe, trying to make sense of this new religion, which they don't see as a new religion, but they see as a variant uh, of uh religious opposition that's already uh, described 
uh, in Genesis. Uh, so this is what, what I try to do. At the same time, there are other uh, authors who, uh, who portray uh, Muhammad in more elaborate and vivid ways as a false prophet who fakes miracles in order to hoodwink the Arabs and to get them uh, to follow him. There are a number of chroniclers, including a chronicler of the First Crusade, the First Crusade, which, of course, captured Jerusalem in 1099. And one of the chroniclers who wrote about it about 10 years later uh, was a monk in the Abbey, uh, in the Abbey of Nogent uh, in Normandy, Guibert de Nogent. And uh, he wrote uh, a history of the First Crusade. And he, in the beginning, he gives a biography of Muhammad, uh, of Mahomet, as he calls him. And he portrays Mahomet as uh, a false prophet who uh, did bogus miracles to uh, trick the Arabs into following him. And there's stories that we see, and you, I, I get into these stories into some of the iconography around them uh, in my book, in the second chapter of my book in particular. Uh, for example, he says that Mahomet had trained a dove to eat seeds out of his ear. Uh, and then when he was preaching, the dove came and landed on his shoulders, put his beak in his ear. And Muhammad said that this was the angel Gabriel come to reveal God's will. Uh, he also, according to Guibert and other 12th century authors, uh, wrote his book, meant so, without doubt to be uh, the Quran, uh, and that he tied it to the horns of a bull, and that this bull uh, appeared uh, suddenly in the midst of a crowd that Muhammad was haranguing, and uh, Muhammad proclaimed that this was a miracle, that this uh, book was sent from God. Uh, so these kinds of stories, uh, what you know, I like to tell my students, this is sort of the fake news uh, of the 12th century uh, meant to denigrate uh, Islam, but also to explain uh, its successes. Uh, and there was even another uh, story of a, a fake miracle, which I discuss in that chapter, uh, is about Muhammad's burial. Uh, according to these stories, he was buried in an iron coffin uh, that was placed in a temple in Mecca that had uh, magnets in a ceiling so that the iron coffin floated uh, and uh, in the air uh, in this temple. And that people, of course, thought this was a miracle, uh, it, proof that their prophet Muhammad was favored by God. So these are some of the rhetorical advices uh, devices that I try to uh, understand and I try to show you know, what they're doing, uh, why these become extremely popular. Uh, the story of Muhammad's coffin be was extremely popular into modern times and you even find in 14th and 16th century world maps, uh, Mecca uh, shown with Muhammad's floating coffin. Yeah, that was really fascinating, too. I actually was going to ask you to, to tell our, our readers about those particular legends, because they're just, I, I think, incredible. 
Um, let's uh, let's also let's talk about some of the specifics in terms of the, that that are happening in the, between the 12th and the 16th centuries. Um, so, what is happening? Um, you know, the idea of with, because one of the main points you're making here is that he is being portrayed in very different ways. Uh, you know, yes, he's a false prophet in some in, in some contexts and sometimes, but he's also a very he's very positively portrayed later on in other contexts as well. Um, and you're very, very clear about what is happening in Europe, you know, internally, religiously, politically, and so on, in, in, and how those um, dialogues and debates shape Islam and or their uh, views of Islam and Muhammad. So in many of these cases, these people actually have a very, almost very accurate idea and, and knowledge of Islam, and they still manipulate some of these details. But what is happening um, between the 12th and 16th centuries that's leading to Muhammad's image as a false prophet. Well, of course, uh, very different things over those centuries. You know, one of the contexts that I mentioned earlier was justifying the Crusades, which we see in, in Gibel of, of Nogent. Uh, another context that's important in Spain is, of course, the Reconquista, the Catholic conquest of, of Muslim Spain. Uh, and then, uh, which is, of course, followed by uh, a long period in which uh, Muslims uh, lived in a subordinate status within uh, Christian kingdoms in Spain. So to justify both the conquests and the uh, the uh, legal uh, inferiority of the Muslims, uh, the figure of Muhammad was used in these societies in Spain uh, to uh, show that Muhammad was not a prophet and that the Saracens or the Moors, Moros, as they call them in Spanish, uh, should be uh, tolerated within Christian society, but could in no ways be considered equal of Christians. Mm -hmm. To move ahead to the 16th century, of course, there uh, things in Europe change dramatically in, in two important ways. One is the Ottoman conquests. Uh, the Ottomans uh, push, c conquer much of southeastern Europe and push into central Europe, uh, laying siege uh, to unsuccessfully to Vienna twice in, in 1529 and then in 1683. Uh, so the fear of the, the Ottomans, the Turk, is important. And, and uh, one indicative uh, element of this is that the word Saracens is now not used nearly as much as the Turk. To talk about Muslims, uh, they're described as Turks. Uh, and of course, the other big uh, change in the 16th century is uh, the Protestant Reformation and the religious wars that divide Europe. So there was a translation of the Quran that was actually made in Spain in the 12th century uh, as part of a project to try to combat Islam uh, by through knowledge of it. In other words, translate uh, the Quran into Latin so that it could be read and refuted by Christian theologians. Uh, this copy of the Quran, the, the, the translator was named Robert of Ketton, uh, and this was cop copied numerous times in about 30 uh, manuscripts, uh, at least that's how many survive today. Uh, and then one of those manuscripts uh, made its way into the hands uh, of uh, a printer in Basel uh, in 
the 16th century. And it was published in 1543, along with a number of other Latin works uh, written by Christian authors refuting uh, Islam, uh, with a preface by Martin Luther himself. Martin Luther, who justified this publication of a translation, uh, because he said uh, there's no better way uh, to combat the Turk than to expose the lies of Muhammad. Uh, so, uh, a ve- again, a part of a project of refuting Islam at a time when the Ottomans were pushing into Europe, uh, but also Luther and other Protestant authors used their reading of the Quran to refute Catholicism, because, as Luther famously said, uh, the Pope's devil is bigger than the Turk's devil. Uh, so arguments from the Quran were used uh, against Catholicism, and then Catholic authors uh, did the same thing. They read the Quran uh, and uh, used it to try to refute uh, Protestantism or to find similarities in Protestantism. There's a uh, drawing I uh, reproduced from 1687, a Catholic uh, almanac published in Paris, uh, where you see Muhammad uh, in hell together with Calvin, uh, and they're both attacked uh, in hell by their followers to whom they had promised heaven, but of course who ended up in hell. And the idea is to equate uh, Protestants, Calvinists with uh, Mohammedans or Muslims uh, to say, and that of course in in France in the 17th century, uh, the real danger from a Catholic point of view uh, was uh, Protestantism. So equating uh, Calvin with Muhammad uh, was a way uh, especially of denigrating uh, the Protestantism. Uh, but Uh, There was another very interesting 16th century author uh, who read the Quran uh, in a much more sympathetic way to uh, attack the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, This author, uh, Michael Servetus, who was born in Aragon, he was a uh, a physician and uh, and a philosopher and theologian, and he decided that the Trinity was an illogical uh, and false doctrine. Uh, and of course, the Trinity is a central doctrine uh, for most Christians, including for the Catholic Church and for Protestants. Uh, but he was inspired in part by his reading of this translation, Latin translation of the Quran. Uh, and he used arguments from the Quran to uh, make his point that uh, Jesus never preached the Trinity he says the apostles never preached the Trinity, but that Muhammad had a much clearer idea of uh, true monotheism uh, than did uh, Christians of the 16th century, be they uh, Protestants or Catholics. And for uh, because of his writings, uh, Michael Servetus was condemned first by the Catholic uh, Inquisition in the French city of Vienne, Uh, Then he fled to uh, Geneva, where he was finally put to death by the Protestant authorities. So the one thing the Protestants and the Catholics could agree on was that Michael Servetus had to be silenced for his uh, heresy uh, of uh, attacking the Trinity. So we see how 
uh, Islam enters into this debate between Protestants and Catholics. You know, the, the, the concept of um, immaculate conception of the virgin birth of Jesus also figures very, very prominently in some of, the, some of these discussions, and it helps Muhammad to have believed, you know, the, the virgin birth story. Um, and I, so I, for those of us who are not very, uh, who are not scholars of Christianity very much, what is, uh, why does the, why, did, why is the discussion of immaculate, the immaculate conception so important in this time period? Well, the Immaculate Conception, first of all, just a, a precision, the, the, the Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that the Virgin Mary herself was pure and that she never, uh, not only did she stay always a virgin, but that she hadn't been uh, touched with original sin. Uh, according to Catholic doctrine, everyone since the fall of Adam and Eve uh, is born with original sin that is washed away at baptism. But uh, according to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, the Virgin Mary never had this original sin. And this only became official doctrine of the Catholic Church in the 19th century. Uh, during the Middle Ages, it was hotly debated. Uh, some theologians were in favor of the doctrine, others not. And what's interesting is that, uh, to make a long story short, one of the authors uh, who is arguing in favor, a Franciscan author was arguing in favor of this doctrine, uh, came across a translation uh, of a hadith, a hadith uh, from Bukhari, uh, which said, uh, there is no person that Satan has not touched except for Jesus and his holy mother. Now, whatever the context uh, in which this Bukhari uh, found and recorded uh, this hadith was. Uh, it was then later used by Christian authors in the 12th and 13th centuries uh, to argue against Jews to that see even the Muslims respect the purity of the Virgin Mary. And then this was picked up uh, by uh, authors in the 14th century who were arguing for in favor of this doctrine. Uh, and what's even more surprising is that you can even find paintings uh, between the 16th and 18th centuries uh, of the Immaculate Conception in which you see uh, the Virgin Mary in the center surrounded by the doctors of the church who wrote in favor of this doctrine, all holding their books or scrolls. And uh, among these, uh, you see Muhammad. So Muhammad uh, and often holding up the Quran uh, because these authors didn't necessarily understand the difference between Hadith and Quran. But they said, you know, Muhammad in his Quran uh, uh, proved the purity of the Virgin Mary. So the idea being that Christians, of course, should accept it too. So here's a very positive uh, image of Muhammad, uh, but again, instrumentalized in an inter-Christian debate. Right. And then in the Enlightenment um, period, the Enlightenment Muhammad is a pretty fascinating, I mean, that chapter was very fascinating as well. Because, and, and it's not just Muhammad, but also Moses and Jesus that are also imposters and false prophets and such. So did the, but did these authors ever address the question of prophets in other religions or talk about figure, figures like the Buddha or Confucius, for example, or their primary targets are only monotheistic prophets? 
Well, we we find uh, we find some of both, and uh, one of the things I tried to look at in that chapter is the the varying ways in which uh, you know many of these authors are trying to attack the privilege of the Catholic Church or, or in England the Anglican Church, uh, and they use the figure of Muhammad to do it, and they can be done in in one of two ways. Uh, this author you mentioned. Uh, this anonymous text from the early 18th century, uh, the book of the three imposters. Uh, and the three imposters are, of course, uh, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, who all trick people into thinking they're chosen by God. And they do it uh, because of their own egos and their own desire for power and wealth. So what this author is doing is he's taking, this is a fairly standard view of Muhammad. And what's, of course, new is that he's... Uh, using the same uh, techniques to denigrate uh, Moses and Jesus. But of course, this was an anonymous uh, uh, work and it would have been dangerous to openly uh, proclaim such things in Europe that's still uh, quite predominantly Christian. Uh, But some uh, authors used Muhammad in the opposite way to present Muhammad. And we see this uh, in the 17th century, in 17th century England, with Henry Stubbs, uh, then in France in the 18th century with uh, Henri Comte de Boulainvilliers and then Voltaire, uh, again in England with Edward Gibbon, uh, the idea that uh, Mohammed was a reformer who abolished uh, paganism and idolatry in Arabia and who preached a pure form of monotheism, presented as even purer than uh, Christianity, because it does not have the Trinity, because it does not have the cult uh, of relics and the cult of saints. So an extremely positive uh, image uh, of Muhammad uh, used uh, largely to uh, attack the role of the Catholic Church. Let's talk about Voltaire. You just mentioned um He's popular, especially in Muslim circles, I think, for having denigrated Muhammad and for writing very poorly of him. But you're showing us that his opinions on Muhammad actually changed, um, especially after he reads Sales' translation of the Quran. So I would love to hear more about the, 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 so the Sales' translation of the Quran, George Sales' translations of the Quran, what inspired it, for example. And then what about it influences Voltaire's opinions on Muhammad? Yes, George Sale uh, is somebody we know very little about. We do know that he uh, translated the Gospels uh, into Arabic, uh, and he also uh, translated the Quran uh, into English. He published his translation in 1734. And it's an important translation. Not only is it much better than the one earlier English translation, uh, but it's... uh, Whereas earlier translations, whether into Latin or into other European languages, had always been prefaced uh, by their translators who said, this is a dangerous book, this is a heretical book, Muhammad was a false prophet, etc., and presented, justified their translation by needing to know your enemy in order to attack him. Uh, Sale does none of that. Quite to the contrary, uh, he has an introduction in which he traces the history of Arabia, uh, the the life of Muhammad, and the early history of Islam in uh, quite neutral terms or even quite positive terms. He's he's read uh, some of the authors I just mentioned, uh, such as as Boulainvillier, 
uh, and he gives a similar uh, portrayal of Muhammad. And his uh, Quran translation was extremely influential. Uh, Thomas Jefferson bought a copy in Virginia, a copy that's now uh, in the Library of Congress. Uh, And as a matter of fact, this is the copy that Congressman Keith Elliott, the first Muslim congressman uh, in the U.S., took his oath of office on in 2007. Uh, The uh, Goethe also uh, read this uh, translation, and uh, so did Voltaire. Voltaire, who had spent time in England and uh, was impressed by this translation. And indeed, whereas Voltaire in uh, his earlier work, in particular his uh, play, Mahomet with Fanatisme, Muhammad or Fanaticism, uh, in that early play, Voltaire portrayed Muhammad as a symbol of religious fanaticism. And as he explained, uh, it was in order to uh, attack indirectly Catholic fanaticism. Uh, but after having read Sale, he decided to take the opposite tack uh, to uh, praise Muhammad uh, and praise Islam in order to denigrate uh, the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, so in his Essay sur les Mœurs, which is his uh, sort of sweeping world history, he presents uh, uh, Muhammad in a much more positive light as a monotheistic reformer. And to get back to your earlier question, because I, I didn't, uh, I realize, fully answer, you had act about, asked about other uh, figures. Uh, what's interesting also is that some of these authors starting the 18th century uh, expand their horizons, not just looking at confrontations between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but also looking at other religions. And that allows them to step back and uh, be less hostile towards Islam. Uh, there's uh, uh, one author in 1787, uh, a French author, uh, Pastore, uh, who wrote a tract on uh, Muhammad, Confucius, and Zoroaster, uh, who presented the three men as great lawmakers. Uh, and this is an image we see. Uh, so th- this, this comparison is looking at uh, trying to expand beyond a Eurocentric view, uh, look at great uh, traditions of, uh, of these great figures who were uh, moral and religious figures, but also uh, presented principally as lawmakers. Uh, and uh, so we do have, this, this plays a big role in uh, improving uh, or giving a more uh, serene and objective uh, image of Muhammad. And the idea of, of uh, Muhammad as principally a lawgiver uh, is uh, we find frequently in the 18th and 19th and into the 20th century uh, in the Supreme Court uh, of the U.S. Uh, there's a freeze uh, done by Adolf Weinmann, a, a German-American sculptor uh, who in the 30s uh, portrayed in the frieze uh, that goes around the main chamber uh, of the Supreme Court uh, with 18 uh, lawmakers from Hammurabi in ancient Mesopotamia uh, all the way up uh, to a recent uh, early 20th century Supreme Court judge. 
and they're presented chronologically. And Muhammad is one of these great lawgivers. No, thank you for that. Um, now, Napoleon figures quite positively in this book. Um, you you suggest that there, you know, his ideas on Muhammad are actually not just propaganda, which which is what I've read elsewhere. Um, but that he seems to genuinely believe these statements about him, like the, the very positive images of Muhammad that he has, and then they inspire him and influence influence him as well, um, and the way that he rules. Can you tell us about his idea of Napoleon's ideas of Muhammad? Yes, uh, Napoleon, uh, I actually start out my book with a, a little anecdote of uh, Napoleon 1808 is in Germany, and he meets Goethe, who at the time is a young poet. Uh, and the two uh, talk about poetry, literature. They talk about war and politics. And they talk about Muhammad. Uh, and uh, Napoleon finds out that uh, Goethe translated into German Voltaire's play, which we just mentioned, uh, uh, de Fanatisme. And uh Napoleon gets annoyed and he tells uh, Goethe that's a very bad play because uh, Voltaire took Mohammed, who is a great man who changed the course of history and makes him into a petty criminal. But he said it's not surprising because Voltaire was a petty philosopher who didn't understand great men. Uh, so clearly uh, for uh, for um, Napoleon, uh, he's... Uh, Muhammad is a great man who changed the course of history. And 10 years earlier, uh, when uh, Napoleon had gone to Egypt, he took with him uh, the Quran in a new French translation uh, by Claude-Étienne Savary. Uh, Savary, uh, his translation into French is very much in the same spirit as Sales' translation 50 years earlier into English. Uh, He writes an introduction in which he portrays Muhammad as a hero, a great uh, charismatic leader, a great statesman, and a brilliant general. And clearly, uh, Napoleon saw Muhammad as something of a role model. And he arrived in Egypt uh, ostentatiously brandishing his Quran to to try to convince the Egyptian that he had respect for Islam, respect for the Quran, respect for the prophet Muhammad. And of course, uh, we can see this cynically as, uh, as very self-serving, which, which it indeed was. But what I found interesting is at the end of his life, uh, when he's exiled by the British into the South Atlantic island of St. Helena, he writes his memoirs and he comes back to his Egyptian uh, expedition, which he describes, and he writes about Muhammad and he uh, then, of course, has no reason uh, to uh, say what he does, say anything other than what he thinks. And he says, you know, Muhammad is uh, one of the uh, most underestimated, misunderstood figures in history, uh, that he was a great man who changed the course of history. He was a brilliant general. And in reading this, one has the impression that Muhammad was the kind of leader that Napoleon sought to be and, and didn't succeed uh, totally in being since he ended up uh, defeated and exiled. Uh, so yes, it's, uh, there's a quite uh, an identification uh, that Napoleon makes with Muhammad and other authors uh, made it too. Uh, Goethe himself uh, refers to 
uh, Napoleon is Der Mahomet der Welt, the Muhammad of the world. Uh, and uh, Victor Hugo, the, the great French poet of the 19th century, refers to Napoleon as a Mahomet d'Occident, a Muhammad come from the West. So we've been talking about um, European Christians and their ideas on Muhammad. Have Jews been, you have a chapter here on Jewish ideas and Muhammad, Jewish uh, authors' ideas on Muhammad as well. Um, but were they were there any Jews writing on Muhammad um, similarly in, in you know contextualizing their writings or or if their writings could be contextualized in similar ways to the Christian ones? Um, and what are in, what are influencing their attitudes towards Muhammad? Because we, we we hear about this more uh, in the recent chapters in, in more recent decades or centuries, but not before that. Can you walk us through? Um, why necessarily more recently we're seeing Jewish writings on Muhammad? Yeah, so one of, one of the, uh, the reasons is very simple is that I don't read Hebrew and I'm not uh, familiar with, uh, with uh, much of the, uh, the earlier writings of Muhammad. And I'm not aware of, of much scholarship on that. I'm not sure exactly how much material there would be to say uh, describe what Jewish writers uh, said about Muhammad uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, but what I did find uh, fascinating was the work of, uh, of these Ashkenazi uh, scholars in the 19th century, uh, most of whom were associated with the movement of Reform Judaism. And to put that in context, we have to remember that 19th century was a tumultuous time uh, for Jews in Europe uh, on the one hand, they were given new freedoms in, in most uh, parts of Europe. They were given legal equality uh, with Christians for the first time, uh, which gave them freedoms, among other things, to, uh, to buy land, to build synagogues. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, there was uh, continued and in some cases increased uh, anti-Semitism, sometimes violent, of course, uh, and uh, Jews were divided among themselves how to react to these different things. And one of the things uh, we see uh, that I tried to, to show is a sort of a nostalgia for uh, Islamic society, in particular for medieval Islamic society, whether it's the time of Muhammad, whether it's uh, Baghdad, whether it's uh, Andalus or, or Muslim Spain, uh, Islam is portrayed by a lot of these Jewish scholars as uh, a civilization and a religion uh, that are much more conducive uh, to the flourishing of Jewish culture. Uh, in part, this was based on obviously some historical truth, uh, but also based on the fantasy. Here these people were uh, being told by anti-Semites that they were not uh, able to fit into European culture, that they were unassimilable, uh, and their response was to say, well, if we can't assimilate into your culture, it's the fault of, uh, of Christianity and of your culture, not of us, because look at uh, how we flourished uh, in uh, Islamic society. So uh, Muhammad is seen as quite friendly uh, to uh, Judaism uh, and quite tolerant uh, of Jews, and he's seen uh, by some of these writers uh, like uh, Abraham Geiger or Gustav Weil 
uh, as somebody who had been inspired uh, by his teachers, some of whom were Jews, and who had adapted uh, the best points of Jewish religion in a simplified form uh, that would be palatable to Arab culture. So let's discuss some more recent portrayals of Muhammad. And I, and, and I don't. I wanted to. I was thinking of a way to summarize. And and if this is even, it probably isn't fair because your whole point is that it's really complicated and that these uh, portrayals of Muhammad are they're constant. They're they, they vary right from time to time and context to context. But would it be fair, do you think, to say that more recently they are much more positive, um, or at at worst they're just they're ambiguous? But they seem much more positive more recently than they were in, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, for, for example, or before that. Well, one still finds, of course, a great variety. And there are, uh, we could cite uh, right-wing politicians in Europe who uh, will say things uh, 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 like, will denigrate Muhammad uh, in order to try to show that uh, Muslims can't be assimilated into European culture. They'll attack Islam and in particular attack Muhammad. Uh, but on the other hand, we find in the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, other uh, scholars who are much more, and, and not just scholars, but also uh, in particular uh, Christian uh, leaders who are much more open towards uh, respect for Islam and uh, sort of, sort towards ecumenical attitudes. And I talk about uh, some of these people in my uh, final chapter, uh, Montgomery Watt, who was a uh, Scottish uh, scholar who was uh, wrote a uh, scholarly biography uh, of Muhammad in the, in the fifties. And it was also uh, a, an Anglican priest who was very much involved in uh, interreligious dialogue with both Jews and Muslims. And he uh, pled for Christians recognizing Muhammad as a prophet. Uh, and uh, we find uh, Catholic authors who also uh, try uh, to argue that uh, Muhammad should be recognized uh, as a prophet. Uh, people like uh, Louis Massignon, uh, in France, or uh, Hans Kung in Switzerland. I have to ask, have European women ever written about Muhammad? Like, at least recently in, you know, 1900s or so? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, most, uh, the, the vast majority uh, of the text I've dealt with uh, are written by men. Uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, I could find some examples. There was a, uh, a German poetess in the 18th century. Uh, no, excuse me, early, yeah, early 19th century, uh, who, uh, who wrote about Muhammad. I mentioned her briefly, uh, but yeah, there are very, f- there, there are very few to my knowledge, uh, representations by women. Because I, I wonder, um, since women are writing, I mean, they're traveling and they're they're doing a lot of travel narratives uh, as they go to the you know Muslim Muslim majority countries, and I wondered if not even them had written anything on you know on Muhammad or 
Islam in in ways that uh, would be helpful to our at least idea understandings of how women are also thinking about or writing about Muhammad. Well, that's um, a very interesting question, and that would that would make a, uh, an interesting topic for research. Uh, there's, of course, uh, as you mentioned, there's a, a rich uh, variety of uh, of these narrations, travel narrations uh, by authors, you know, throughout uh, from the Middle Ages on forwards, and partic- particularly uh, in the more recent centuries. Uh, so, I that's not a, a literature that I've delved into extensively. So, I know, you know, as a medievalist, I know some of the uh, travel narratives uh, by pilgrims, uh, both men and women, uh, some of whom, uh, but I, again, the examples that come uh, to my mind are mostly men. Some of them have brief uh, descriptions of who Muhammad is, uh, usually in conjunction with visiting a site where they see Muslims. Mm-hmm. In the conclusion, you, which by the way was such a, it's your conclusions are really, really good. When I read something, I, I need to make sure that the conclusions are doing a really good job summarizing the main points. And your book was doing that very well. So thank you for that too. Um, you compared the portrayals of Muhammad to portrayals of, of Jesus. Uh, in what ways are these two related? And, and are we talking about um, the ways that Christians and Jews have portrayed, and, and basically every all of these three religious uh, communities are portraying Muhammad and Jesus. Um, how are they related? Well, yeah, they're related in, in several ways. One is, you know, I mentioned in, in the introduction to my book that it's very hard. I mean, of course, my point is not to try to write a history of, of, of Muhammad the man, but of right. the image of, of Muhammad. Uh, but of course, uh, in the beginning, in the introduction, I try to look at what we do know about Muhammad. And it's very difficult because, of course, we have uh, the Quran, which was uh, put down in writing probably uh, within a generation after Muhammad's death. But it doesn't give any narration uh, of his life, contrary to the Gospels for Jesus. Uh, and then we have uh, Hadith and Sirah, uh, which were all written down uh, based on orally translated, transmitted uh, traditions, but were not written down until about two centuries after his death. So uh, it's very difficult to say anything from a point of view of a historian, anything certain about Muhammad. And we have similar problems, of course, for Jesus, because the Gospels were all written, obviously, by partisans of Jesus, uh, written between 30 and 80 years, probably after his death. So uh, we can't quite trust the sources we have, but then on the other hand, that's all the, the all we have, so we have to use them. Uh, and in the conclusion, I get into another way of uh, of comparing images of Jesus with images of Muhammad. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan uh, is a church historian, wrote a wonderful book, uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, about the different images of Jesus, the way Jesus has been imagined uh, over the centuries by different groups of Christians, uh, some of whom have made uh, portrayed him as this powerful king of the universe. Others have made uh, have emphasized, on the contrary, his suffering and his humanity, and all sorts of things in between. Uh, so there are many Christian images of Jesus. There are also Jewish images of Jesus. Uh, some medieval Jewish scholars uh, presented Jesus 
in a very negative way as a false preacher, very similar to what Christians, some Christian authors said about Muhammad. Uh, and more recently, uh, many Jewish scholars have emphasized Jesus's Jewish heritage and saw him as reforming Jew. So all sorts of different ways to see Jesus. We can say the same thing about Muhammad. Uh, within Muslim tradition, uh, there are many portraits which have given, uh, emphasized many different aspects uh, of Muhammad. Uh, and then, of course, uh, if you look at the Jewish uh, and Christian uh, and different uh, scholarly and polemical perspectives uh, from outside Islam, you also have a, uh, a wide variety of, uh, of images. And as we near our conclusion, um, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know either about the book, um, anything, anything at all that we haven't talked about maybe? No, I, I think uh, I'd just like to, to emphasize that, uh, you know, this is a, a scholarly book. And so I've uh, taken a pleasure in finding out and to, to delving into what these different images of Muhammad are. Uh, but it's also a book uh, when one writes history about these, uh, about these subjects at a time uh, when there's been, uh, unfortunately, new uh, murders uh, by extremists who are protesting or claim to be protesting against ways Muhammad is portrayed. Uh, it's important for us to, to step back and to try to let, tra- take a look at the history of these uh, representations. That that's actually a very good point. I think this this interview is especially timely given what's happening what's been happening the last couple of weeks. Thank you for that. Um, and then as we conclude also, we like to ask our authors to tell us about any research that they're currently working on that we can look forward to in the new future. Yes, well, I've uh, had the good fortune along with uh, three of my colleagues to have a major uh, grant uh, from the European Union uh, for a project called the European Quran uh, on the uh, impact of the Quran on European culture between the 12th and 18th centuries. So we're looking at translations of the Quran at texts about the Quran. Uh, and so this, obviously I'm continuing in the, in the same vein, but my, now more focused on the Quran. And uh, so we'll have, uh, and we, we've got a whole, been able to hire a whole team uh, of young scholars, postdocs and, and PhD students. So uh, we're embarked on this new adventure. Well, that sounds exciting. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this, and I'm pretty sure you're, I, I'm, I have no doubts that our audience did as well. So thank you, John. Thank you very much, Shanaz. It's been a pleasure.